Welcome back to The, the Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today we are back with the third edition of our Scaling Mentorship series. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, a couple months ago we decided to do essentially an event series where we thought, hey, let's reach out to executives at large companies and see if they will let us interview them in front of their employees and put it on the podcast. And so we wanted to find out how do people go from you know being just an employee at a company or an individual contributor to actually rising through the ranks and running, let's say, a multi-million or in some cases, like our story with Becky Frankowitz, which was episode 114, where this is a woman that at a fairly young age is running a multi-billion dollar company. And so we uncover exactly how that got there and it's in front of a live studio audience. And if you were wondering about how we got that interview with Becky Frankowitz of Manpower group or the week before that of Andrew Glincher of Nixon Peabody, which is a multi-thousand person national law firm. We actually got that through one of our PR contacts at Havas PR, which is a major global public relations firm. And for this week's episode, we got a chance to sit down with the CEO of that PR firm who talked to us about exactly how he rose through the ranks of being, again, somebody that joined a public relations firm at an entry level right after college to actually in his 20s getting a managing director title and ultimately running one of the larger PR firms in the country. This is a very interesting conversation about not only how to grow a career in PR or how to gain an executive position at a PR agency, but actually how this person hustled to get clients to get to a point where they were recognized as a leader and then capitalized on that to get new opportunities. And then if you're a founder also that's interested in understanding where PR is going. The second half of the conversation talks about the future of PR and how Havas, actually, which is now known as Red Havas, is helping lead the way of that future. Please enjoy our conversation with James Wright, CEO of Red Havas. Okay, we're going to get started. You guys ready? Yeah. Cool. We'll do our little intro so you know we're actually really in it. Cool. All right. Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs and leaders despite lack of experience, money, or connections. Okay, so today on the show, we have James Wright, global CEO of Red Havas. Uh, and uh, he has an incredible story for how he came to be in this position now. And you just moved to New York. How long ago? Uh, January, so five months ago. Well, Welcome to New York. <clears throat> but you're originally from uh, London, right? Or from uh, the UK? From the UK, yeah, yeah. And then you spent a lot of time in London. Yeah. And in the pre-interview, we talked to James and we heard about a little bit about his origin story, which, of course, you guys will all hear uh, throughout this interview. But I wanted to start at the very beginning. I know that you come from a family that ran a farm. 120 years, which even if anyone of us knows anybody that's a farmer, 120 years is a very long time. Uh, and I know that also in your family, it was normal for somebody else in the family to take over the farm and continue to run it. Uh, and it could have been you, but it happened to be that it was your brother. And so then you went the other track, and I guess the, the corporate track. And uh, you spent a couple of years in agencies, but eventually by 26 years old, you became managing director at a large agency in the UK. So. Talk us through that time after college. Obviously, it ended up being a, a great that you were in a position where you didn't have to run the farm, fortunately, and, and you uh, were then placed to do this. But what do you think separated you or made you a little bit different or even positioned you to then be thrust into that leadership role at a very young age? 
I think growing up in a family business, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about what's happening, I guess, in the real world when, you know, your, your father's bringing back sort of the accounts from the day and, and money becomes a real kind of everyday conversation piece. And so you sort of understand the ins and outs of that. And I, I always grew up having to sort of work on the farm and do tasks around that. And I think, therefore, then you sort of take that sort of knowledge and experience of working hard. You know, you come back from school, you do stuff. You know, you do work at the weekends, you know, you'd, you'd help out all the time. And so you're in this constant sort of cycle of, of doing things, which I actually thought I, I was a very curious person. So I kind of learned a lot around that. So when I um, decided that um, because my brother was older, I definitely didn't want to work for him. Um, <laughs> I decided I was going to give it a go and go to college and university. And I, I became the first person in my extended family to go to university. And still to this day, I'm, I'm the only person that's done that. And other people within my family group have been successful in other in other ways, in, in sports or in, you know, in, in their own sort of uh, businesses that they've, they've gone on to start. So it's all different for different people. But, you know, I had a real desire and determination to try and be the best I could be at, at what I was doing. And my uncle at the time was quite senior in, a, uh, in marketing in a, in a big DIY company, a big national DIY company in, in the UK. And I really liked what he was doing. He was always doing something fun. And I thought, you know, that's, that could be really interesting to get into. And so I researched it. I did a bit of an internship with him and then kind of went off to university and um, studied and and then I decided that was it I'm going to go in and every day be a better version of the person I was the day before. Mm. And what what is a DIY company just to clarify? It was called Wilkinson's DIY. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. He ran the uh, he was the CMO and ironically his name was Wilkinson Paul Wilkinson mm -hmm. but um, he actually he wasn't part of the family that owned the DIY company even though every time he turned up at an event everyone thought he owned it <laughs> which he, he took advantage of I think with various free tickets to glamorous events. <laughs> Interesting so Obviously, growing up on the farm set you up to be a hard worker. Actually, Sergey and I, our dad put us to work at a small business at 11 years old, which, of course, some labor laws would say that that was very legal. Uh, but we were just helping out dad. He wasn't paying us. He did help pay through college, so he, he came back and helped out later. But uh, we ended up working at that business from 11 through 24? In a shopping mall, and we would go back yeah. during the busy seasons and help out throughout even into our late 20s, yeah. But at 11 years old, we were negotiating with vendors and because our dad's English wasn't very good, we come, we're from Belarus and he only spoke Russian really. And so whenever the tough conversations had to happen, we had to do it. And it is a very formative experience. But for you, you know, yes, you were a hard worker. Yes, you were incrementally trying to improve all the time after college and you, and you realized that that was important to stand out. But how was it in those four years before you got that opportunity to be a managing director? I think you were going from agency to agency, right, getting more and more experience. But what were you doing then? Actually, I started um, at the same agency, but the agency was then evolved. It got bought by a big um, PR group. And, and by that point, I was already starting to move through the ranks. I, I think it was a lot of it was about showing initiative. Mm. I think that um, you can really pull yourself out of the pack if you're doing more than you're being asked to do or you're suggesting, recommending things that you think the business should, should be doing. And so, you know, I was always the first to put my hand up to do other stuff, to help and support on new business pitches. Just uh, really, I wanted to get as much experience as I could and also kind of um, tap into the knowledge of the people around me. And I was very, very fortunate that I had uh, a fantastic group of senior leadership around me who really allowed me to do that and allowed me to, to develop. And over time, I ended up being some of their bosses. And so it was an interesting sort of dynamic. And yet, I remember reflecting on a conversation with one of them who said that actually if anyone was going to do what you're doing was you because you were so much more advanced than those people around you at that at that age now, aren't necessarily words I would have used to describe myself but I was just trying to do as much as I could and learn as much as I could 
And then I think a big part of that, and particularly when you start off in agency land, is, is all about your contacts and networks and the clients trusting you and people in the industry trusting you. So when I got to know my clients, I really made an effort to get to know them, not just professionally, but personally, and go that extra mile with them. You know, I'd go to football matches with them. I'd go, uh, I'd go out for a beer. I'd get to know what sort of their passions were. And two things then happened. One is that they then often started migrating to me with briefings, even though actually they should have been going to somebody more senior on the team. And secondly, they started spending more money with us because actually they, they had other work in other agencies that they started to, to give to us and, and trusting me, if you like, to start to manage their business. And once you start to become really important to your agency like that, you start to get given respon more responsibility because naturally the client is doing that anyway. So it's a natural step for your agency to do so. Well, that's interesting. Can you give us an example of how you did that? I want to I wanna understand a little bit more about your process because I understand that networking is important and I understand that knowing your client deeply is important. But when you came to work on a Monday and you had, let's say, maybe a client list in front of you, how did you execute against that list? I mean, especially for the folks in that room or anybody listening to the show that is NPR, interested in being NPR, if they want to accelerate their career that quickly, what do you actually tactically do to make sure that you win business and you get those briefings um, instead of somebody else, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I, I would come in very early, particularly in the UK. I, can, I was at work every day at seven. And I'd like I'd want to be researching, reading what was happening in the industry of my clients so I could actually then have a conversation with them first thing as soon as they got through the door about things that happened either through the weekend news or what was happening and broken that morning on a Monday morning. And then even if it was nothing to do with our, the briefs that we had, but looking at what their business problems were and the challenges that they had in their industry. And then, you know, just the fact that I'd taken an interest was, was different to a lot of other people who, who were they would see as just service providers, you became a genuine partner. And then starting as you got to know that industry, thinking of ways in which they could resolve that. And a big client I had was BT, which is the formerly British Telecom, it was the big telecoms business there. It was going through a huge transition during the 2000s when I was working for them. And I, I worked for them from the day I walked through the door to the day I left the UK in 2011. And that business had followed me the entire time. Wow. And working on, on that. And um, they were going from a transition from a telecoms business to a comms business. They were getting into digital music. They were getting into streaming and, and sports and entertainment. They had very big relationships with you know, PlayStation. And it was a real fascinating period because it's like this huge monolith kind of business that, that was trying to you know, redefine itself and its purpose. You know, so that was a fascinating business to work on, and, and I got to know it really, really well. And I, I, you know, I used to know more people in that business than the client because I just, over time, been working there for so long and got to know it that I knew all of these different parts. I mean, this, this was a business at one time I had 120,000 people working for it in the UK. Wow. That's huge. So knowing different people, I'd get phone calls from, you know, the client wasn't just one person, it was a number of people who would ask me if I knew somebody in different parts of their group. Mm. And then I guess it was awesome because one of, one of the, I guess, greatest accolades I had was that when they asked me to write their Company of the Year awards for um, a big sort of global business awards piece, which is uh, run by the Prince of Wales. And um, they went on to win that. But it's a huge dissertation that you write about all of their impacts on the community. It's called the Business in the Community Awards. And the fact they asked me to, to write that because I knew everything about what they were doing in the community because that was a large part of the briefs that we had. You know, that was, they wouldn't normally give that. That they give other awards to, to write for the agency, but not one that was purely about their business and understanding their business and getting access to information that they wouldn't normally give to their agencies. Interesting. And how old were you at this point? 25. 25. So then, very young. Uh, and 
you know, I think one of the things that stood out for me is, and especially for the young folks that are listening that are graduating right now, for example, but even people that are early in their careers, early on, especially for us, I mean, you feel like you join companies and, all right, tell me what to do. I'll do it and I'll try to do a great job. But really, the way that you stand out and progress and grow, and you realize the way that you create value in any role or even a startup that you join, let's say, is by taking initiative, solving problems, and doing things that other people aren't doing. Because ultimately, that's what is going to accelerate you at a young age like you did. And then, so a year after this, you got another opportunity as a managing director. Talk about that story. Would you say that was a pivotal moment in your career? Well, I'd started to, so BT had become a huge client at this point. They'd kind of consolidated work into our business. I was working on a number of other clients. I had um, very, very large global uh, clients. We were working for Coke. We were working for McDonald's. We were working for HSBC, for Sony. Mm. And, you know, I was, I'd actually sort of started to forge the creation of a, a sort of division that was focused mainly on sustainability and uh, cause. And uh, for, for big businesses, so I had, we had the HSBC Climate Partnership, we had the work that Sony was doing on um, uh, technology and, and how technology can improve the lives that we lead. Same thing that was going for, for BT, where they were very much focused on helping people. They were a communications company, helping young people in their communication skills at an, uh, at an early age. What I said to the, to the group was, well, actually, I think we should create this as a specialist division globally. I think we should have a, a division that focuses on this. So they allowed me to set it up because I wrote a business plan. They didn't ask me to. I wrote a business plan and they gave me then. At that point then, they, they'd given me like I was at that. I think it was an executive director at that point, which was, was um, before we, we created these MD roles. The, the, the business changed a few times. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was at that level and I was a good 10 years younger than anyone else that was at, at that level at the time. Ah. But I was kind of creating it. And I think I've been very fortunate in all of the business I've worked with is that they're very entrepreneurial minded. And I find that often if you go with an idea, it makes sense, and you've given a lot of thought to it, you know, if your bosses trust you, they'll give you the chance to, to do it. I mean, they also give you enough rope to hang yourself, but, <laughs> you know, fortunately, you know, be able to, to be very successful at that. And then we went to um, and, uh, and won a huge piece of business with Jaguar Land Rover, and that business started to evolve globally and go much more into sort of um, outside of the environmental issues that they were facing at the time as you know, the Land Rovers and Range Rovers were being called Chelsea Tractors. There was a lot of aggressive uh, NGO action towards the automotive manufacturers to improve how they were building and uh, running their cars and trucks, etc. And I guess, you know, that then became, we became kind of the go-to organization. And then that built because we started doing product PR and other parts of their business and retail uh, and their dealerships. And, and uh, because suddenly then I had two of the biggest clients in the global network, that were under my portfolio, you, it was just a natural, uh, I guess, naturally that they then made me the MD. And when you say you won that piece of business, because we, and we've talked about this, I think, in the last three weeks a couple of times, one of the ways that you make waves in an organization and get leadership positions is by bringing in business, bringing in revenue. Yeah. How did you win that particular piece of business? We just went, I think, further than the other <laughs> agencies. You know, we really got under the, the skin of that business. And um, when I moved to Australia, we won Toyota with, with the same type of approach, which was, to leave no stone unturned and be willing to tell the client what they what they really need to hear to hold a mirror up to their business and say this is this is the issues you're facing mm. not just go and tell them what you you know you think they want to hear but actually what the reality is so we went and spoke to a whole range of different stakeholders who were interacting with that business not just sort of journalists uh, but you know other other businesses that were suppliers that um, 
we went into dealerships to shop people in dealerships, uh, you know, to, to hear what people were saying about that. And also in the competitive dealerships, yeah. we pretended we were from a university and we were doing a research project. But, mm. you know, ways in which you can find information out from people that can build uh, a strategy that you want to present to a client. Now, I do want to hear that side of the story of what happened once you moved to Australia. But before I ask that question, when you got the uh, managing director role, how many people at that point did you did you have reporting to well, you? Oh, we, we had um, uh, directly probably about 14 or 15, but we were, we were a team of about 900 okay. around the world. Wow. Um, it's a big, it was a big agency group, and we'd grown hugely during that time. I mean, the agency that it was when I joined as an entry-level graduate was probably 40 people. Mm-hmm. We were then bought in 2005 by a big group called Huntsworth, which was bigger, and they merged a whole range of their businesses into a, an agency that became called Grayling. Mm-hmm. And we were 900 people. We were doing huge, uh, huge growth, fantastic profitability. And it was an agency really on the move during that the sort of time that I became MD and then the time I left the business. And how does that, when you're 26 years old and you get an opportunity to manage people for the first time, I mean, even 14, 15 people, that can be pretty intimidating if you've never done it before. How did it feel to jump right into it? What were some of the first things that you did to get comfortable with that role? You know, it's strange. I, I found it quite natural to me, and, and a lot of those people were, were a lot older than me. It felt, I mean, maybe it was the arrogance of it at the time, but I felt like it was, you know, I deserved it because I, I'd worked really hard and I'd got the relationships and I felt like, you know, I, I should be in that position or given the opportunity to be in that position. Uh, or at least I thought that until then they gave me it. <laughs> uh, and then the reality set in. But, uh, you know, I, I've always found it very easy to change the way I am with different people. I think I've got good soft skills around understanding how to get the best out of people. And I think a lot of that comes from sports. I, I played a lot of sports throughout my life growing up and often ended up, you know, captaining sports teams. And there's a lot of the way in which you manage people that you can take it within that. I mean, I often say that, that most most managers when I grew up, like they, they did one of three things to try and get you to do something. They either used the, you know, the little carrot or the stick, or then they, they'd take you out and get pissed and see if, you know, see if they could like, find out what, was, what the problem was and then try to resolve from there. Get yeah, drunk for the Americans. The third, the third, one, third, third ones didn't, uh, didn't often work. But there's lots of nuances in between and has to how you can get the best out of somebody. And also, if you lead from the front, you know, people will follow you once they see that you've actually got, first of all, an idea and a vision of what you want to be. And a lot of people are very risk averse around wanting to put objectives on a wall and saying, we in six months time will decide whether we were successful by whether we hit these one, two, three, four, very you know, uh, measurable goals. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to say that because that's what you would do in sports. You know, you know if you don't win, then you know, you're not being successful. You're not, you're not performing. Or if you're not performing, then what are we gonna to do to be able to perform and be successful? Hmm. It sounds like you were very deliberate at every step of the way. And what I mean by deliberate is, you know, if you had a goal, you figured out what you needed to do to accomplish that goal. And so you were executing against it. Even uh, you kind of brushed over, but I do want to highlight it. I mean, when you were winning that business, uh, let's say with Toyota, uh, when you moved to the Australia, I mean, you guys figured out, even if you had to pretend to be a student to get some data for the client to show uh, them what they might not know to try to win that business, to have conversations with 100 stakeholders across the business. I mean, that's real work. And oftentimes when we meet with early stage entrepreneurs or actually even salespeople at established companies, they might ask, well, why is it so hard? People don't want to buy my product, but it is supposed to be hard. I mean, it's, it's difficult to convince somebody of the value and you have to put in the hard work and people have options in the end of the day. So if you don't, like you said, not leave any stone unturned, then you're not doing enough work and that's why you're not getting the results that you want. So I think you were very deliberate about that. And that probably was quote unquote, your superpower is 
you know, when you were in a sales role trying to win business, you were proactive about it. When you put were stuck in a or positioned into a leadership role, you not only helped through your soft skill mo- motivate other people, but also you led by example uh, and actually did the work as well. But over the years, uh, until you were 32 years old, and we'll get to the part where you actually moved to Australia and got that opportunity, how did your role evolve? Did you end up running that team of 900? No, it wasn't. There, was a, there was a global CEO that were sitting above me, and it was a guy called Michael Murphy, who is um, still a good friend today. Mm-hmm. And um, he calls me occasionally from his flat in Richmond. He's now a consultant, um, fantastic guy, and had a, a, a CEO for our UK business called Loretta, who's also very much a, a big supporter of mine. And, and certainly they and, and others really helped me with my career development, kept giving me opportunities and putting me forward for you know, industry awards as well and, and felt that I was a, a sort of beacon that they could showcase to other young people in our business mm. that anything is possible. You can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it. I mean, I'm a big believer and a lot of people that work with me get to know, hear me say this a lot, but you, know, you can teach skills, you cannot teach attitude. And it's all about having the right attitude because generally when someone's coming to the business, they've got the basic motor skills to do the job. But what makes them different is the <laughs> attitude to it. And so Every day, if you've got that attitude that you can be a better version of what you were yesterday, you will continually improve. And um, if you're just going to come in and just go, just spin your wheels, then, you know, go and work somewhere else because I don't want to work with you. We need to be constantly evolving, particularly in our business, which changes so rapidly and and all the time. Mm -hmm. I spend more time here than I do with my family. So, you know, why would I want to come in and just do an average job or just come in and just do the job? I want to do something else. And also in our job, and this is a really big point. In comms and in PR, you can actually change things that are happening in the economy, in society, in your communities. And so actually using your skills that you've learned, and you know, they are generally kind of like really incredible skills you've got to be able to influence change. That's why I love the job I do. And speaking of change, you know, one thing that we've learned through interviewing at this point hundreds of people is that even if you attain a certain level of success early on in your life, you're not guaranteed to keep on getting the same opportunities and keep on getting elevating and leveling up every single time. Sometimes life pulls a rug from under you in ways you cannot expect. So tell us what happened when you got a call to get the opportunity to run a PR firm in Asia Pacific and you ended up moving to Australia. What happened? Because I think it wasn't exactly what you expected. No, I um, was looking to move markets and I was a bit burnt out, to be honest. And I was looking for something different and something new. And it was for the first time really moving out of the agency I'd been in. I mean, it, it changed names, but essentially it was the same agency. And I was, some of the people were still the same that I'd worked with. You know, and I was 31, it was 11th year into my career. And I got this opportunity with a business called RSC, Euro RSCG, which was the Havas name before it became Havas. Mm. And one of the pieces that I was really interested to get involved in, because at that time, there was a lot of talk around where PR sits, and it was struggling to get into the top table for marketing spend with where the advertising media agencies were making a lot of money. So part of the attraction of Havas was the opportunity to also go and uh, play a, a leadership role within our advertising media agencies there, in addition to doing what I knew, which was running PR businesses. And I think that was really, really exciting. Plus, um, I'm a big traveler and I'd already backpacked around the world twice and spent a lot of time in Australia. I had a lot of friends who I um, had played sports with. I played a lot of cricket when I was growing up and a lot of the guys in Australia do too and played with a lot of those guys and uh, knew them. And so having backpacked around Australia, loved loved it. And I thought, you know what, 
there's one place in the world I'd go and live because it is the most beautiful place in the world. I want to go and live in Australia. And given the opportunity to run a PR business and a media and advertising agency was, I think, uh, an opportunity I didn't want to pass up. And so what happened when you landed there? Uh, so I finished that. So I, one of the big reasons I wanted to take on what was the Red Agency then, which was part of the Habas Group, in, which was the PR agency, was um, they were working for Google. And it was a really, really exciting client. I'd done some work for Google in Europe on some issues management between um, some issues that were, they were facing in Greece and Turkey. Mm. So three or four months later, I, I land in Australia. It was Easter. And go into the office after the Easter break, first day, and got showed around. It's fantastic. Brilliant. Weather was fantastic outside. This is it. Fantastic. Lots of people talking to me about different accounts. It was a very small agency. It was like nine people. And I said, oh, you know, could someone give me a briefing on Google? And they said, well, we lost Google like two months ago. <laughs> and I was like, nobody had told me. So the, the one reason I thought that, that this agency could turn around was based on Google. So anyway, that was off the table pretty much straight away. And so we had to make some changes and, and, and reset the whole agency. I knew I was going to have to reset the agency anyway. When you move to a, a role, there's always skeletons in the closet, but this was, a, frankly, a bit of a graveyard. It was a business that was making a lot of a big loss, mm. and so it needed a, a proper reboot. And again, you know, had a, a lot of fantastic support from the le uh, leadership in, uh, in Habas uh, across the region and also colleagues in, in Australia to be able to turn it around. And, and turn it around, we did it very, very quickly. So talk about that dynamic, because you came from a 900-person agency, right, effectively, to a nine-person. Very, very different environment you probably had a lot more opportunity to just kind of drive things in the direction that you wanted to drive. But how did your job change then? And what did you do in those coming years to pull them out of that loss? So we are a French headquartered business. And you, when you're far away from the mothership, it's kind of like it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You can do what you want because no one can see you. <laughs> and yet they really kind of, you don't really have a, an idea of what's going on elsewhere in, in the world because you're so far away. So that also meant you couldn't really rely on anything else coming. It wasn't like they were going to start sending us work from the center. It just didn't happen. So uh, I guess your entrepreneurial spirit kicks in and, you know, you, I guess, sort of get down to, back down to 101 with, with how you're going to reset and run an agency. And I was very used to running agencies and an entrepreneurial spirit is kind of very much inherent in me and decided that I was going to go out and meet as many people as I could. I had connections already in Australia through through sports and, and also through other people I knew, having been in my previous role, who connected me with people. So I actually arrived with two accounts already. Mm. You know, so I always was bringing money with me, but then I just had to like trust uh, some of the people around me. I had a very young team, and a lot of those young team members stayed with me for quite some time as we started to kick goals, uh, win business, win awards, and it just kind of spiraled from there. And um, you know, I guess the rest is history. Within seven years, we, we were about 110. Um, we were making a lot of money. We'd taken on um, the agency group had gone across Asia. We'd gone into Singapore, we're about 30 staff in Singapore. We had people in Philippines, we've got a, a PR team in Vietnam and a, and, a, and a team in Indonesia. One of the things that we like to do on this show, especially for folks that are not familiar with certain industries, is to try to get an understanding of what does it actually mean to win business and, and what are the size of those accounts. So when you're coming in there, you're starting with a, a business with a loss. 
what were the type of contracts you were getting? How big were they dollar-wise? How many of them were you able to get in that, let's say, first year? I mean, also, I mean, this bear in mind, you know, I was coming from working for, you know, I just launched the Range Rover Evoque globally, which was a major, like, design change for that brand. Mm -hmm. And it was like the entire KPI was get this car on front page of Design Week, you know, multi-million dollar account to essentially trying to pick up three, three or four thousand dollar a month accounts, mm -hmm. you know, like thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And that's where it had to start because, you know, that was what was there. And um, there was a couple of accounts we won very early on that stayed with me all the way till I left recently. And even though they never really changed in terms of size. And why was that? And people off, I always get this question from the guys in Paris. If they hadn't spent that fucking money with us, we wouldn't be where we are today. And I, I'm a huge, a huge person around loyalty. Mm. And I will always, always be aware of people that have been loyal to us, whether they're clients, suppliers, colleagues, whatever. And I think, you know, we will give them the same level of service that we gave them always because, you know, they trusted us. And actually, one of those businesses did start to grow as well with us. There's a, a Spanish business called Cosentino, and um, they, they ended up spending about three or four times the amount. But I reckon that account was probably three and a half grand when it started, a month. And they were entering the market. We were a bit of a challenger. We tried to position ourselves as a challenger brand, a challenger agency. They were a challenger into that market, and they, they grew with us. And I think you know, there's lots of examples of that. One of the things that we talked about uh, in our pre-interview is the interesting dynamic of your role where you were in Australia, you were starting all these different business units across Asia, and every country that you would go into, there'd be slightly different dynamic, different culture, obviously, but also different business culture as well. Talk about that a little bit. How did you figure out, let's say, how to start a new business unit in a, a new country where you didn't really know anybody and you didn't know this is how they do business there? Well, I, I traveled a lot in my time. I think I said I, I traveled the world twice. I'd gone and done charity treks in very in all sorts of different parts of the world. I was I was big into sort of uh, big into that for a long time, and so I, I knew something about their their markets. I either I traveled there or um, I'd gone got on to learn to learn about it. And I think having that kind of knowledge of having either traveled their country or knowing something about them that was was interesting was quite important because um, a lot of it in Asia in particular is all about relationships and respect. And so, you know, you're going in there and also not trying to give them the way you want it to work, but actually listening and actually seeing, well, actually, how can it work here under the, you know, the environment in which they, they are used to operating? That's not to say you can't evolve that or change that, but you've got to be very respectful of the way in which business is done, the way in which culture and society works. And you know, going there, yes, with a point of view, but also with the understanding that, that you're going to have to be flexible around that because it's a different market. Where I grew up, which was, you know, we were doing a lot of work into the US, Western Europe, you know, and then Hong Kong, Singapore. You know, there are a lot of differences about those markets, but there's also a lot of things that are the same. You go into Indonesia, it's very different. You go to Japan, it's very different to other China. There are still things that are the same, but there's a lot less that is the same. So I just think you've just got to be very aware of the people that you that you work with and, and you know the environment in which they've got to operate. I mean I think it's it's becoming clear to me that part of the reason why you got the opportunities you did at a young age and why you were able to win business in a completely new environment is because of how attentive you are about people, their cultures, their norms, what they want and how they expect to be treated. And I think that's a great takeaway for anybody in this room. If you make it a point to get to know people you will be able to win business from them. And then we actually heard that from one of your clients, Andrew Glincher and Nixon Peabody, where he would meet a lot of clients by volunteering and actually being friends with them first, right? And so 
I want to fast forward to your time here because you have been named to this role to run Red Havas or uh, global CEO of Red Havas, uh, Havas PR across the world. You started in July, but you've been here since January running this. And it's clear to me why you got this opportunity. You were able to build a massive business from scratch in Asia. But talk to us about this, this new concept that you guys just announced yesterday. It's merged media. But to somebody just reading it in the news or seeing the wonderful promo video that we just saw, we might not quite easily quickly pick up on what that means. So from the perspective of a client, if I am even, let's say, an entrepreneur or a business leader that is just thinking about spending some money on PR right now, and I might be spending five, 10 grand a month with you, what should I be looking for in the PR company? What does merged media mean now? I'm always fascinated by our own obsession as an industry across marketing, communications, advertising, media, digital, PR, whatever, around where the future is and what the future of the industry is and, and which one of those agency kind of disciplines, if you like, will be most successful. The reality is the future is promised to no one. So you've got to go out there and take it. So to me, you know, the, the PR world has always been experts in the earned media side. You know, we, we earn the, the conversations for our clients, whether that's through media or through other, other channels. I'm sorry, to clarify for folks that might not be aware that are listening, earned media meaning news, TV, articles and on the press, et cetera? Yeah, so okay. getting your stories into, you know, into, the, news, into the news agenda mm-hmm. uh, in different ways. And so that's fine, but that's really only part of what we do anyway. And certainly the, the whole world is becoming more and more integrated. And you know, to a consumer who is consuming information about a brand, you know, let's say it's about you know, Coca-Cola, for example, you don't sort of as a consumer go, well, Coke is talking to me through a Facebook page or Coke is talking to me through the news channel or Coke is talking to me through a newspaper article. It's Coke, right? That's the experience you're having. It's one story to them. Mm. So media is also merging so quickly that you're consuming media in multiple channels, often now at the same time. Think about how many times you're sort of on your phone whilst you're watching TV or you're listening to the radio or even potentially even like on conference calls or whatever. Now, people are consuming media all the time. Now, how do you make your story relevant and meaningful in this media world that's all merging into one? And so that's where we are looking to, to really drive the work that we're doing. And that means that we also want to get into the driving seat more often in the owned media of the clients. But by owned media, we're talking about the channels in which a client is using to inform their stakeholders about news and stories that they have. So, you know, you know, most brands now obviously have a website, they have social channels, they'll be hosting events and conferences. Those are all their channels in which they, that they own that they can talk to a, uh, a stakeholder. And if you think about it, if you're doing that, you're actually releasing your news through that. So essentially you're a news brand. And I think that, that newsrooms that are becoming smaller and smaller in you know, traditional media houses are actually moving out of media houses and into PR agencies. Because in, in essence, if we're managing all of those channels, as well as the earned component, we're essentially becoming a newsroom. What does that mean, though, for a client? I mean, if I, should I decide to use, for example, a digital agency or a PR agency or a content agency? How do I know who to use now that the lines are blurring? So I think, you know, you, you, for us, it's about we want to go out there and prove the model. And, you know, we've got fantastic examples of that in uh, in Australia in particular, we've got a couple of examples of now in the, in the US, we're making investments into those types of roles and different disciplines and specializations you need in the agency to be able to, to do that work. And I think, you know, we want to get in a room and actually talk to people about how we're set up. And I think they'll be able to see the value of that. 
the reality is for a lot of clients at the moment, they're using a lot of different agencies to do parts of that. Now, there are inefficiencies in it, partly because that usually means that um, they're not talking to each other as regularly, so information is sometimes going out not quite on message, if you like. Mm -hmm. But also, there's inefficiencies in the fact that they're having to brief four different agencies about four different things. And so that also becomes a frustration, and that's just some of the things I've heard from, from my clients who are, you know, who are also trying to transform their own business in this sort of world of real-time news and real-time breaking news, if you like. So how can we help them? That's our, our job now, is to prove that that service is one that they want. Interesting. So clearly, uh, the space is evolving and changing, and part of that is because the way that we communicate is changing and the way that we consume content is changing as well. And you here are helping Havas basically take on that and uh, provide those services for your clients. But over the next handful of years, how do you think, uh, for the folks in this room, how do you think their jobs will change? Or more importantly, I guess, taking a step back and looking through your career and what you've been able to do, there's obviously going to be a lot of opportunities now going forward as well in this business. What advice would you give to the people in this room for how they can take advantage of these opportunities and continue to grow and progress in their careers? You've just got to be open to change and also be really embrace it. Get comfortable with, with being uncomfortable because things are changing all the time. I mean, the first couple of years of my career, the mailroom was the, was the hub for a PR agency. You spent all your time stuffing envelopes, sending faxes, you know, and you know, that was like a world away from where it, where it is today. There are skills that are still very much the same in terms of understanding communication strategy and problems and how you will tackle them with clients. It's just that actually then how you execute it is changing. So learning about that, learning how that, um, that opportunity can work for you is, is, I think, something that's really exciting about the work that we do. We, you know, we're, in, we're in a public relations business. We're an agency that's highly creative, that's, that's thinking about solutions for clients. It's a fun place to work. Mm. You know, so take it not as a challenge in that way, but take it as a fun challenge. You know, this is a fantastic sort of industry that's evolving and changing all the time, and that's, that's not the same for other, other, other industries that are they're potentially either dying or, or struggling to transform. I think we've got all of the tools in our armory to transform. And particularly us at Havas, who you know, we're owned by a large group, Vivendi, where we've got access to some of the world's most fantastic entertainment brands. You know, we have the world's biggest music company in Universal Music. We've got the world's biggest mobile gaming company in Gameloft. We've got you know, fantastic experience in TV and film through Canal Plus and, and Studio Canal. Those and the access to that kind of way, the entertainment and data and talent that they've got, is you know fantastic for us because of course you know we're also trying to entertain audiences uh, with the stories of the brands that we work for. So, as a final parting thought, and I think that's actually incredibly helpful, being open-minded and open to change. But even more specifically, what would it take for you to notice someone in the organization and try to help elevate them through the ranks? I think that knowing that they're going further and not just working hard, but like coming with with ideas and presenting them in, a, in not just as, a, as, oh, I've got this idea, but actually it's got some meaning and thought behind it. I think that often will pull someone out of the pack straight away. Mm -hmm. Particularly if they've also, you know that, that other people around them, their line managers are saying, this is somebody we need to look out for. Mm -hmm. In our presentations, we have to give back to Paris. They often ask us, you know, name us your three members of staff that you want to look, out, look after. And then, I mean, with KPI, whether they're still here in a year's time. Mm. And actually, it's a really, you start going down the chain and you actually ask, you know, practice groups or offices to do the same thing. You know, those are the three people, it might be three, it might be five, whatever it is, depending on the size of your business. But if they are the people that will move the, the needle for your agency, and we're all about talent, our best and greatest assets walk in and out of the building every day. We're not selling a commodity, we are selling ideas and strategy. 
if you're keeping the best people, then, you know, then you'll be a success. I, I often say in very simple terms, when you're running an agency, there are three steps. The first is hire and retain the best talent. If you do that, the second step is you'll do great work. And then if you do that, the third step is you should be a, a success. And you know, don't do the second or third step until you get the first one right. And so we're all about talent. So I talk a lot about really you know, supporting and helping people. And also recognizing that some people will leave your agency. Don't ever make them an enemy. I'm very happy if people found, you know, think that their future is elsewhere. You know, support them, be, be supportive of that. Might not necessarily always agree with it, but there's a number of, of team members that I've had in my time who've left the agency and then come back because mm. actually they realized actually the opportunity was much stronger for me here, just that actually maybe we, were, we weren't as mature as we were when they then came back because they just potentially thought it was going to be too hard to get to the vision that I was setting for the agency. But that's for them. I, I've never made an enemy in this, in this business and I don't feel like there was any reason to. Yeah. I think that's great insight. Uh, and I mean, you said yourself that throughout your career, sometimes you'd be working for somebody, sometimes that same person would be working for you. I'm sure later on, as you went on to other roles, you'd recruit people to work with you again. And so when you're high quality talent, people do notice. I'm sure even people sitting in this room, you can probably think of one or two people that you just love to work with because they get things done. And guess what? Your bosses are doing the same thing when they're reporting back to Paris. Uh, they're sitting down, they're talking about who are the three to five people that we should look out for because they're going through that same kind of mental uh, exercise of figuring out who can we elevate, who can we maybe put into a specific role so they can help us solve these problems. So I think that's a huge thing to keep in mind. Well, and I'm presuming I was one of them during my career, and, and yet I probably wouldn't have known. But I, I, then when I look back at how I did it, and then I started to see how they were doing it, was like, well, completely makes sense. So that's, that's your high performance. Yeah, it's safe to say that you were, James. Uh, you wouldn't end up here. But it's been really great having you part of the show. Uh, I think there's a lot of great takeaways for everybody here as well. James Wright, we wish you the best of luck here in New York City. Hopefully it's uh, as cool as London and Australia, but at the very least, we have all the seasons. Yes, that's right. All right, so uh, James, thanks, thanks again for coming on The Mentors, but we'd love to open it up to the folks in this room. That's part of the benefit of doing a live event is you all get to ask questions directly to the people sitting in front of here. So anyone have any questions for James? What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given from a mentor or a manager? The best piece of advice I got actually was from my, one of my old sports coaches, which was to um, back yourself because if you don't, no one else will. It's like you cannot expect anybody to back you if you're not backing yourself. I think that's really, really important that you've got to, you know, if you believe you're good enough and you're, you've got the skills, then back yourself to go and deliver. I also had a very, very great piece of advice from um, one of my old bosses in, in London who um, was talking about pitching. And his, his advice was, once you've sold, shut up. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an absolute brilliance in that. People tend to oversell or be very frightened of silence, particularly in pitch situations. So they'll make a point and then there'll be silence and they'll remake the point and continue to remake the point until some of that sort of like silence has gone away. There's an absolute brilliance in being able to deliver a, a sales pitch really concisely and simply and then allowing it to sit in the room. And then I would add to that today is trust your client or the potential client to have heard what you've said mm. and, and then let them process it. That's such a great piece of advice and in particular in our world in startups, when you're selling a product that's not quite finished yet, 
it's very difficult to know what the client wants. So your job as a salesperson or as an executive is to learn as much as you possibly can about the client and what they need and then try to serve them something so that hopefully they buy it. And sometimes when you talk too much or when you close the deal and you still keep on selling, you shoot yourself in the foot by proposing something that they never cared about. Yeah, exactly. And now they're like, well, maybe this isn't the right product or solution for us. And so I think that's a I, I was really looking through advice. an email of an entrepreneur that I advised uh, last week, actually. And he, he has a bunch of clients now and he's generating revenue, but he's just not as good at sales. He's uh, he leveraged his own relationships to get the initial deals. But I was looking through his emails and he reached a really important person and in the email, you could see she was bought in, and then you could see he started overselling after she was already bought in. She was ready for the meeting, and then she ghosted him. <laughs> she never responded again because clearly he came off a little desperate. So there is power in silence and sometimes taking a step back uh, and realizing that you probably already communicated the value. That's, that's great advice. Any other questions? We have time for one or two more. Um, James, you do a ton of travel. We all know that. How do you go about balancing your complex travel schedule and also your personal life and your family? I try to make as much time as I can when I can, and um, I'm actually someone who's quite restless. I don't like sitting around doing nothing. But I, I always try to have, when I'm traveling, at least a sort of a half an hour every day. It's actually, you won't see it because it's private in my diary, where I phone my children, and I'll speak to them on um, FaceTime, which is, you know, work sometimes, depending on where they're fighting. Um, <laughs> and so I, I try to make that sort of time, and I think technology has really helped with that. I mean, obviously, I think also when you're traveling so often, I've also got really good at when I'm then with them in person, being completely with them. Mm. And so uh, trying as hard as I can to ensure that the time I've got with them is not sort of uh, interrupted by other stuff uh, at work. And so that might mean I have to get up at five in the morning and work for a couple of hours before they get up because I'm on holiday. And literally in, in my role, you're never really on holiday. Someone's always phoning you, someone's always messaging you. There's some kind of bomb going off somewhere that you need to sort of help resolve. Mm. And then, you know, again, I'll, I'll, I'll rather take calls and do calls late into the evening or, you know, catch up on emails and to, to ensure that I've spent the, that time with them. Um, I don't think there's any kind of silver bullet. I certainly don't spend enough time with them uh, as I would like. But, you know, you try to do the best you can do and as good a piece of advice as I could give you. Yeah, I think as long as you put in the effort, then you, that goes a long way. Um, so if you had to put in a hierarchy, an order of importance, what would you rank first? People skills, knowledge, or initiative? What's yeah. most important in your mind? I don't know about a hierarchy, but you just actually remind me of something I did a while ago, which was um, when I left Australia, there was a, they put together a video, and the word that came up a lot was um, the compassion and, and getting to know and understand people and supporting them no matter what was going on. And often I'm aware of things that are happening in people's lives that others in the agency wouldn't be aware of simply because we need to be aware of when we're, we're running a business. And I always talk the effort and, you know, someone saying, oh, you know, uh, mentioned TLC. And I'd written an article a, a while before that around how this tender loving care is actually really important to how you are as a person. But then actually there was a different type of TLC in business management, which is temperament, leadership and confidence. And so temperament's a huge thing, I think, in business. You really get to know somebody's character when they're under pressure. And I think, you know, having somebody who has that right temperament when there looks like there, you know, there's a massive issue that's exploded or there's a huge problem and actually having somebody who actually can come across as very, very much kind of measured and even handed around, um, around that situation and is willing to take a step back and actually take a breath. And often that comes with experience. You just have used to it so often that you know, you'll see sort of other people around you kind of like 
frightened about what's, what's going to go on and we're all going to lose our jobs and all this kind of stuff. And it's like things are never as bad as they appear. And then leadership is key. And that's really when I, I say, you know, leading from the front. And you can lead from the front as an intern, you know. That's not just about doing what you do in your job. It might be about shutting down staff gossip or, or just not taking part in that kind of things or wanting to say, actually, there's a job to be done that's not great, but I'm willing to actually put my hand up and say, actually, you know, I'll, I'll come and help do that. And I think you know, leadership you can find in all quarters. And then confidence, and, and confidence is important because we all have self-doubt. Um, but you've got to, have to be confident in what you're doing and how you're going to go, out, uh, go about doing it. And again, confidence in a respectful way is, is, a, is a hugely important thing, I think, for me. I love working with people who are confident about where we're going and what we're doing. You know, because if they're not confident, either I'm not doing my job or if I'm not confident about it, then we've got a real problem. So confidence is, is important. So I think, you know, both TLC and TLC in the two different ways I've defined it, I think are really important when you're, you know, growing your career, but also growing as a person, because you're growing as a person every day in your career. Uh, I love that piece of advice. I'll, I'll add something as well, that confidence is not always natural for everyone. And sometimes in the beginning of your career or in certain situations, you have to pretend at first to be confident to gain that real confidence a little bit later on. Because yes, it, it, once you maybe even pretend, you inspire confidence in somebody else and their belief in you then in turn makes you more confident about yourself. So sometimes you have to play a little bit of mind tricks on yourselves. But, um, but I think that's such an important piece of advice for everybody here in this room. Yeah, and taking a step back as well, I'm actually, this reminded me of a story. I'm reading right now a book called Titan. It's John D. Rockefeller's story. And what he's really known for is he was always able to keep cool and have composure. And that is actually a big asset because stressful things do happen, but a lot of times they're in our heads more stressful or there might be more problems that arise from it than they actually are. And your ability to take a step back be cool and actually think about how to solve the problem versus freaking out about it uh, is a big asset as well. Uh, but that does come, I think, with, with some experience as you gain that confidence over time. We always had the joke that, you know, this is uh, PR, not ER. And, um, <laughs> and it's sometimes worthwhile just remembering that. Cheers. <laughs> That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming to the show. James, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much.